Welcome to the Find Your Leadership Confidence Podcast with Vicki Nedling. You are about to discover impactful lessons that help you grow as an individual, grow your confidence, and find the positive and good within you, so you powerfully and authentically become the best version of yourself. Be sure you visit our website at www.findyourleadershipconfidence.com. While you're there, subscribe to us via your favorite network. Now tune in, get ready, and enjoy the journey of emerging as a leader of exception in the 21st century. Welcome everyone to the Find Your Leadership Confidence Podcast. I'm your host, Vicki Nettling, coming to you from Roswell, Georgia. The goal of this podcast is to bring topics and guests that will take your business or your life to the next level. Today, I'm excited to have Diane Frick as my co uh, my co-host, as my guest. Sure, why not? She is my co-host. <laughs> That's right, the two of us. Mm-hmm. So let me just tell you a little bit about her wonderful background. So Diane is a marketing industry executive with 20 years advising brands from Fortune 50 to startups on how to address the toughest growth challenges. As partner and CGO of creative brand branding firm Retail Voodoo, she uses her expertise in brand development, innovation, consumer marketing, and package systems to help clients generate meaningful and sustain, sustainable growth. Easy for me to say. <laughs> Diane believes that business should be a force of good and uses her networking superpowers to drive change in the food, beverage, and wellness industries, specifically in the areas of employment diversity, food equality, environmental justice, and the promotion of sustainable supply chain. Tireless and determined, Diana is obsessed with the world of food, beverage, and wellness brands, and has been building long-term, long-standing client relationships because people trust her to put the right combination of people and resources together. She also founded and hosts the Gooder Podcast, where she interviews the powerhouse women leading on every level in the food, beverage, and wellness arena. Today, I chose the title for this podcast to be Women in Leadership, Making a Real Difference in a Company's Bottom Line. Please welcome Diane Frick. Diane. Well, hello. How Such are you? Such a great background. I just, um, I have a past of being with fast food as well as now one of my other side hustles is wellness. And so I was really impressed with your background and was anxious to get you on the podcast. So, oh, so thank you. So generous. So happy to have you on. We always start out with an easy question, Diana, and that is no pressure. Where do you call home? <laughs> uh, I Seattle. I'm from uh, oh. the Northwest. We're on the opposite ends of the country. We certainly are, but I have been to Seattle and I love <laughs> Seattle. So beautiful. And mm. I love whale watching too. So, 
Yes. Uh, Seattle is pretty gorgeous. Uh, we don't like to tell people this much, but <laughs> it doesn't rain actually as much as people think. It's just overcast a uh, lot of the year. And so the reason why we have green summers, and I mean green all the way through the summer, is because when it rains in the wintertime, all of that water stays here so that when the summer months roll around, we just have these clear blue skies like today yeah. and a lot of greenery and it's, um, it's pretty magical, Yeah. but, yeah. uh, the secret, that's the secret. The, the truth is, is that it rains all the time, just mm-hmm. rains and rains and rains <laughs> all the time, all the, <laughs> all time. the time. Nobody you know, likes it. It was here. funny. I, I had for one of my assignments, I had in my previous job, a, California, Oregon, and uh, Washington. And so I spent three weeks of a month in one of those areas. Mm. And Washington, I just was, and I drove, you know, what I flew to oh my airport gosh. and then I drove around yeah, and, and I drove. was just in love with Washington. Yeah. Portland. Seattle, Seattle just uh, became again, uh, it wasn't like this for a little while, but it's the fastest growing city in the United States again. So COVID, during COVID, people left and now COVID is over and apparently it's growing like bananas again, which would make sense. The houses do not stay on the market very long yeah. around here at all. I, I flew into Seattle when I was actually going to a convention mm-hmm. in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. And so I flew in there and then I drove from mm-hmm. Seattle to Vancouver, which was a lovely drive too. <laughs> Vancouver, BC or Vancouver, Washington? Vancouver, BC. Okay. Yeah. Across the border. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's get into this. Okay. Why is creating visibility for women, particularly women of color in the food and beverage industry so important today? Yeah. So right now, and we're, I'm going to just talk about CPG, uh, consumer packaged goods, for those of you that aren't familiar with that acronym. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the acronym. Right now, the industry is still predominantly run. The leadership is still predominantly male, which is not a bad thing per se. The challenge that we have is when we're looking at fast movie consumer packaged goods, like the food that we bring into our households, the the cleaning products, Mm -hmm. um, the personal care products, we're still seeing um, 80 to 90% of those purchases being driven by women. Mm -hmm. And so when we're talking about maybe not so much the selling of the products, but when we're talking about creating the products and meeting the needs of the households, it's really important to have women involved in the decision-making roles. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that right now there's uh, plenty of women that are, that are doing the footwork that are doing the heavy lifting down below, but in leadership, we're still not seeing the kind of penetration that we need. Compounding that is that our sisters, um, though in women of color, Mm -hmm. uh, are even less represented. Right, right. And when we look at the demographics of the United States, if we're just looking at the math and I'm not talking about equity, but we're, if we're just looking at the math, the diversity of the United States is quickly accelerating. And if we take a look at all of the quote unquote racial groups, however you want to look at it, there are actually 
more people that fit on the on the people of color side, there are more people of color mm -hmm. as an entire group than there is of Caucasian people. That's right. And if we are not meeting their needs, then we're just really not doing a good job of taking care of the people of the United States, the consumer of the United mm -hmm. States. So what we're looking for is if you're looking at strictly the, I'm going to talk strictly the math part, we're stri mm -hmm. strictly looking at the math part. If we're not meeting their needs, then we're not going to get brand loyalty and these, yeah. and these folks will start flipping around and we're not going to be addressing their needs on the equity side. Those of us brands that care, and I personally think we should all care, but those of us brands that care about meeting the needs of the consumer and making sure that we're talking to them in ways that are relevant and useful should also be considering that representation is necessary in order for us to even understand what the needs are. So that's mm -hmm. how I look at it is you can look at it from a math part, the finance part, that you're going to make more money if you're taking care of people's basic needs. And you're mm -hmm. not going to meet their needs unless they're on the decision-making board, not yeah. just part of your census that you're interviewing. And then also, if you're one of those people that feels like business should be a force for good, simply having the representation yeah. is uh, is paramount. This just really is. For sure. So how can the naturals industry do better of educating, understanding the needs of the future generation Z and C buyers? So you're going to probably have to unpack that because some people might not understand naturals industry. Sure. And, and, and also remind some of us the, the, the time span for Z sure. and C. <laughs> Well, and they're a little bit sloppy too. So yeah. we're just going to be, everything will have an ish on it. <laughs> I'm okay with ishes. Yeah. So the naturals, if the natural industry went through a little bit of a, a, a change in the most recent year. So the natural industry for those of us that are listening that maybe don't understand the distinction between the naturals industry and what we in the industry call the conventional industry, a conventional side. We're still talking mm -hmm. about food and beverage wellness brands. Okay. The conventional side are those brands that we grew up with, the Cheerios, the Kellogg's, the uh, Briars ice cream, Mm -hmm. products that were developed over years after World War II. So World War II, just to give you a very high level reader's digest, mm -hmm. the World War II machine after the war got converted into the CPG industry because we had all of this manufacturing capability and no jobs once the war was over. So we started to manufacture foods that had really long shelf lives and products that had really long shelf lives. So we moved from uh, industry or a world of buying fresh foods and making foods from home into mm -hmm. kind of these TV dinners, <clears throat> packaged goods that had one to two year shelf lives, et cetera, et cetera. That's the conventional industry. The naturals industry, which started around the 1970s, was developed by a group of people, mostly the boomers, that started to go, We're putting preservatives in our foods, we're putting dyes in our foods is this really great for our body? Is this really great for our environment? And slowly that industry grew. Many of us still remember going into uh, our local Kroger's and seeing the organic section that was like a five by five booth and everything looked weird and funky mm -hmm. and soft yes. and squishy. Yes. It's evolved over the years. So has food science. In the last 10 years, 
food science has really exploded where we've been able to get into the DNA of a pea and pull out isolates and proteins and that sort of thing and start to make foods that are plant-based and got and uh and started to get the attention of the tech industry so this mm. happened right around the to 2014 2015 yeah. that's when we first started to see what we call meat analogs mm -hmm. so impossible burgers products that are plant-based but designed to look like something else or taste like something or behave like something else and so we saw a big group of people who'd been creating video games and technology and everything go, look at food and go oh this is cool I get it there's a technology component I understand that also becoming a foodie got really sexy and Hollywood started to get into it and that also was really fantastic for investors and what happened in the food industry, in the natural food industry at that moment, was a shift from kind of this homegrown, holistic earth kind of mm -hmm. loving people. We were starting to see some equities because women tend to be the largest demographic of people that start small businesses. And I can talk about that in a little bit. We saw a shift happen almost dynamically. New te This technology Come, people came into the food world, mm -hmm. started to hire leaders from the conventional side, which were predominantly male and white male, and bring them into this natural industry. And we started to see a shift where the naturals industry became purely about making money, purely about profits and promotion, and using those talking points about environmental justice and social justice as marketing elements, but not necessarily mm. adhering to them all. So what can the naturals industry be doing better? I think kind of a little bit of a wake up call and say, the naturals industry has a space, but we're talking to ourselves. We're a lot of white people that have access to a lot of people, a lot of money or resources or contacts making natural and better for you products that are designed for us because the representation is not there. So kind of going back to your first question, we are not taking a look at what the needs of the rest of the, of our consumers are like, and it's because we don't have the representation. We don't have the representation from, um, people of color standpoint, but we also don't have a representation of people of different, um, different kind of incomes. There's this assumption in the naturals in the industry, by the way of the products that we create and the price points, that people who don't have high income are not interested in living healthier. And that is a fallacy. Yeah. But when you have investors putting money in a really sexy industry, they're going to want to create products that have really big margins, that have really high velocities, and not take a look at the larger audience. And I say, if we bring in the diversity into leadership and start taking into consideration that we have people who are of lower economic status or have real, real physical ailments where eating better is in their best interest. And if we look at the size of the prize, if we're going to look at the math again, Mm -hmm. the numbers again, there's actually so much more business that can be had by creating products that 
can address this full spectrum of the American consumer than they can make in this small upper middle class yeah. to higher class audience. So really just kind of stepping out of our headspace and saying, okay, do we really need to make, I'm making up numbers. Do we really need to make 40% margin on everything? Can we be okay making 20% margin and feed that many more people or educate that many more people or take care of that many more people? Mm -hmm. Because the end product is less people sick, which means Mm -hmm. lower strain on our medical system and people living longer lives, happier lives. Like, I just don't see what, I don't, I don't understand what the net negative is, but that that's just me. Oh, that's awesome. So what's the most surprising hurdles that women, as you see it in business are facing today? A a couple are the biggest one is I'm going to say ourselves. Yes. We women tend to over self-criticize and tell Mm -hmm. ourselves that we're not qualified to do a lot of things that I think men do a better job of saying, I think I can do that. And so therefore I'm qualified mm-hmm. versus women who feel like, well, I haven't done it 103.7 million times. So therefore I'm not qualified. Yeah. Somehow we need to find that middle ground um, and rely on, and kind of get ourselves, push that self-talk to the back yeah. and start to believe in what we're capable of and not just what we've proven. So I think mm-hmm. that's, that's our biggest hurdle. Yeah, I agree. The second hurdle is we do not have a business environment that supports women who are still the primary caretakers at home. And this gets into another much bigger conversation, but the long and short of it is home. There's far more equity on the home front. We are definitely seeing men, men step up and take on more responsibilities at home. We're starting to see a resurgence of multi-generational households, Mm -hmm. which I think are going to be, is going to be critical for a lot of the younger generations to kind of come who want to have families from a financial and an accessibility standpoint. Um, So I think we need a readjustment or a realignment on what work-life balance looks like. Maybe take a look at shorter work weeks, allowing people to split jobs up. So instead of uh, work share was something that was tried in the nineties for a little while. I think Mm -hmm. it might be something that we might want to reconsider again, expanded education, expanded childcare, less expensive childcare. It's a really big systemic change. Small moves would be as an employer offering, offering uh, flexibility when it comes to work from home for those where it makes sense in manufacturing, it doesn't always work that way. Mm. And for other of those that we've seen a number of larger companies like the Starbucks of the world to offer on-site childcare to help with some of those people and maybe even start to delineate who has access to that childcare. So if you are an executive, you don't have access to on-site childcare. We want to make on-site childcare more accessible for those that have limited means and limited access and start building some of those equity things. We're not talking about equality. We're talking about equity. How do we help our employees feel good about coming to work and give us our best work and not have to worry is helping bridge some of those gaps that are society doesn't have in place right it's set up right now that's excellent so why aren't there more women in the food and beverage um, leadership roles the c-suite the the vps is it 
is it really some of this thing that we just talked about, the the self-sabotage or, or doubt in their skills to com- compete? And, and how can we change this? Yeah, another big systemic question. There is a lot of self-sabotage. There is also something for consideration. I mentioned that I would address this. Mm-hmm. I would address this earlier. One of the things that I learned I interviewed Kira Dilly from Frito-Lay on my podcast, and she gave me a statistic that said the number of women that start small businesses, particularly in the food and beverage industry, the percentage of women that are women that are single mothers is exponential to women who are in family units of some sort. And the, uh, and outweighs the number of men that start uh, small businesses. Mm -hmm. And the reason why is these women are looking for opportunities to create a way of taking care of their families that will help them actually participate in the family. So we're seeing a lot of single parents, specifically single mothers Mm -hmm. who need a lot of flexibility in their day and then they grow their business to a certain size and then they sell it to somebody who can scale it into something much bigger. I'm not sure what the answer is specifically other than I, if somebody could study all of those small businesses and find out what are those activities or what are the consistencies and can we build systems to be able to support those women? Because I will tell you if a, if anybody starts a business, it's exponentially harder to run and grow a small business than it is to plug into a nine to five job. I'm using air quotes uh, at a major corporation. I'm telling you, they work much harder. So you have dedicated people that are willing to work their butts off, but they need some flexibility. And I think until we can understand what those needs are at a granular level and start addressing them, we're not going to be able to see women grow into those roles. And there's a lot of opportunity. There's a lot of untapped talent out there that can't work in the workforce the way it's set up right now structurally. So finding that flexibility is, will be the magic key. I I think. Yeah. And as for someone who had spent almost 40 years in the corporate side and now the last, um, six years on the entrepreneur side, I will say, yes, uh, I'm working harder than I worked in my 40 hour job, but I'm more fulfilled. You know, you have, you have greater control. Yeah. And also I, I'm always been big on uh, self-development and professional development. Yeah. And a lot of times in a job, it's like, no, you have to do your job specific duties every day, set five days a week. Yeah. And there's no time for you to be personal development. And when I started my career, there was time. They made time. And so I think it really, if you want to attract people to your nine to fives or job sharing or whatever it is, you need to afford back the ability for that person to grow. To grow. And and really from a succession standpoint, it never yeah. made sense to me yeah. to not have formalized mentoring systems, coaching yeah. systems, and training for your people that are uh, the, the B players or the C players, you know, yeah. that, that are going to, that have the capability to yeah. become an A player 
if yeah. given that developmental piece. Yeah. I will say that I'm seeing more of that happening now than beforehand. And that is, I think this younger generation that's coming into the workforce, generation Z sort of demanding it. There was some rumblings around millennials. Millennials are kind of late twenties to early forties. Um, and we always have to remember every generation goes through their twenties and every generation in their twenties has some sort of rebellion that's different yeah. than the generation yeah. before them. That's just part of being the twenties. <laughs> so I want to be really careful that what I'm saying here doesn't sound like, well, that generation Z no millennials are the same way. I was, I'm part of X when I was an X, we did that had our own rebellion and the boomers and it's just the nature of people. Absolutely. But I think between the millennials and Gen Z having the COVID show up in the middle of that and seeing a complete destruction of support systems and finding out where the gaps are in mm -hmm. everything from mental health to job stability to equality. I think there was a lot exposed at that time. And every generation ends up having access to more and more information and more and more visibility people mm -hmm. who are gen z these teenagers and early 20 year olds they are way the heck smarter than i was at that age they just infinitely smarter coming in far more astute and part of it is i want to say because you know i was such a good parent you know but the other thing is just access to data yeah that's exactly right i know my four-year-old grandson and my seven-year-old grandson are yeah are far smarter than their parents were. <laughs> yeah. And, it's and a, it's I'm not miraculous. even going there as a boomer. <laughs> right, right. So I would say that, um, you know, if we can, it's really all about being open, open to change and open to what's possible. I yeah. know as, as I'm Gen X and as I start to, you know, continue on my age journey, I have to be careful to every time I hear myself using language, like what my parents use, like, yes. well, in my day, and I have to go, <laughs> okay, in your day, when somebody was 50, they were off, you know, they were close to old, retirement. Old. And, you know, <laughs> now 50 is legit midpoint because they're saying we're going to live into our early hundreds. Now yeah. well, I've got another 50 ish years of, of working here. I cannot be set in stone so yeah. much changes in three or four years now to say this is the way it has to be for the next right. 50 years is ridiculous. So I think it's an openness to understanding that things have changed before us. They will change right behind us and to figure out, you know, what's your personal North star and making sure that you mm -hmm. fit that what your decisions are as a leader are guiding those people behind us so that they can support us but then also that they can have a fulfilling life because yeah, sure. why do you want to work your whole life and have it be a slog? Come on yeah, now. For, right? sure, for sure. Yeah. I was talking to someone the other day on a podcast about change management Yeah. in my last several years as a project manager. That was one of the things that I focused on because change was happening so often and with our technology and especially yeah. the upcoming with all of the artificial intelligence piece. Yeah. You have to get used to the fact that you're going to be constantly pivoting. Yeah. And, and I, it's, I think it's so important that we look to at how can we add that to the curriculum that we're teaching our kids? Yeah. Yeah. So they don't struggle with it. Yeah. Well, that's another systemic change. You know, if we have 
I you mean the education system, nobody wants there to be change in the education system. I, it seems like everybody wants what was taught in 1982 <laughs> to be the same now. And well, I just find that to be foolish. But I also think that education should be lifelong. I myself just actually, I just finished my MBA um, two-year program. I have a book for you about change. It's called, what is it called? Um, I don't even remember because my brain is still fried. Saturday was my last class. <laughs> oh yeah, I could. I'll have to send it, it to you. But um, yeah. you know, talking about change and that change is um, whether we want to believe it or not, nothing has ever remained the same. Period. Exactly. End of story. Because mm -hmm. if it was, we'd still be slicing hay mm -hmm. and living in huts, and we're not. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, and you can't grow. You can't. Every, every time you get to that comfort level, that expertise level, then yeah. you need to, to, to learn something new. And then you start all over and, and, and you're not the expert anymore and you're going to fail and you're going to, and how your mindset stays with that. Yeah. that okay. Yeah. Let me look at this as exciting and, and interesting. And I guess having that masculine mindset that I can do this, uh, you know, what the heck it's, yeah, not, not rocket science. <laughs> and unless and then, it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, unless it is, unless it is. <laughs> and then that's different. Yeah, then you can get the schooling. But yeah, um, you know, I, I think that's there has to be changes. And and for me, going to elementary school in the 60s and 70s yeah. high school, uh, we said the same thing. And that's why I never really gave the millennials a bad, a bad rap because I, rem all the things that they were saying, I remember saying when I was exactly. their age yep. and, and it's like, it's just a different way to say it, but it's the same yep. thing. Yep. Just remember back when. Exactly. Yeah. All right. So we are closing on um, where we need to just do a quick couple rapid fire things. Okay. So how can we be a advocate to help diversity in the corporate leadership. And, and even I think beyond that, if you have a small business, anything, you know, how can you be that advocate for diversity? Well, diversity means a lot of things to different or to different people. I would say being an advocate means you're open to input. You're open to criticism, you're open to learning and even be open to asking for help. I think mm -hmm. it's okay to reach out and say, this is what I have found over and over when I was been doing my podcast where before a podcast, I'd ask some questions and I'd say, I'm really nervous about asking this question on air. I don't want to sound like blank, blank and blank, but I think it's really important for the audience to hear this. And time and time again, I've heard, ask the question because people, if you're, if that is genuinely how you're asking the question and you're representing a group of people, they probably have that same question too. Yeah. And they're afraid. So there's a respect component, you know, be respectful, come, come hat in hand with a desire to learn and to understand, be willing to not know and be wrong. And then also, mm -hmm. if you are somebody that wants to use that phrase 
advocate because there are some people who may not want to own advocate, but do want to be an advocate. And then there are those mm -hmm. people that want to be an advocate like yourself, where mm -hmm. you're saying, I want to share this, then just identify yourself yeah. as that person. When you are talking with people and saying, I want to be an advocate, how can I be of best use mm. to your culture or your group of people? And I think advocacy for people of color, women in color are huge. Other areas of opportunity are advocates for people with disabilities, mm. formerly incarcerated um, and former military. There are a lot of stigmas around mm. all of those groups of people. And I think there's a lot of room for advocacy in all of those areas. Pick one. You don't have to do all, everything or you can be yeah. agnostic, but just know that diversity is pretty widespread. Mm -hmm. For sure. All right. And the last one is who has been your greatest mentor? Mentor? Mentor mm. on this journey that you're taking. Uh, you know, I'm going to say that actually my business partner and husband, uh, David yeah. Lemley has been my biggest mentor because some of the, some of the, you can do this, get over yourself has come from him. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Um, and then he'll say, if, if I was in your shoes, I would say it this way, or I would do it this way. So getting that, like, this is how a, a male or a man would show up in this meeting. And this is what you can say legitimately can say too. So he is my advocate. He's also a women's advocate as well. So he's been my greatest mentor and by way of saying, here's how I walk now follow in my footsteps. Awesome. I love that. That's great. All right, it's time for me to share the screen that you can get the contact information for oh. Diana. So if you all are listening in, I will give the information uh, for the website. But if you're watching, you can get a screenshot. So be prepared. And if you, you haven't go. got a paper and pencil, go and run and get that right now. I warn everybody every time. But <laughs> All right, so those listening in website is https colon forward slash forward slash retail dash voodoo.com mm -hmm. retail dash voodoo.com mm -hmm. and by the way i love that name thank uh, you facebook retail voodoo all one word yes linkedin retail dash voodoo and instagram retail voodoo all one word Yes, And I'm going to let Diana tell you a little bit about what we can, or what you can find when you visit the websites. Yeah. So Retail Voodoo, we are a brand development firm providing strategic brand and design services for companies in the food, wellness, beverage, and beverage industries. And our clients include Starbucks, Kind, REI, PepsiCo, Hi-Key, Sahali Snacks, uh, many other brands that you might know that uh, are market leaders or fast growers. And we like brands typically come to us when they're looking to make big swings. So we're talking about market domination, disrupting the marketplace through branding, marketing, package design and related services. That's what we're our team is all about. And uh, if that is something that you're in need of, or you just wanna learn more about, give, give us a call, give me a call. 
uh, I have her general email address is info at retail voodoo.com. And uh, I hope to hear from some of you. Awesome. And as we show there, you can go to retail voodoo.com slash contact if you want to contact them. Yeah. It's been so great talking to you. You're such a source of great information. And um, I worked for a fast food industry for a number of years. And Mm. um, I'm also originally from Pittsburgh and Pepsi is (laughs) the other Coke. (laughs) Yes. Well, uh, what I will say is PepsiCo is one of the companies that I know is making significant investments in their environmental footprint, personal, awesome. they're internally, they're doing a lot of R and D to take care of garbage and waste and oh, reuse awesome. of plastics. And um, also trying to create products to reduce food waste by upcycling. They're doing a lot, mm-hmm. a lot of work, a lot, a lot of work. That's awesome. I love hearing that. All right. So as always, please go to the website as mentioned and check out. And if you need more information, don't hesitate to contact. She gave you email address. Once again, I always remind you that life is a journey and it is up to you to enjoy the ride. This is Vicki Nethling signing off. Thank you for tuning into the Find Your Leadership Confidence Podcast with Vicki Nedling, where we share impactful lessons that help you grow as an individual, grow your confidence, and find the positive and good within you so you powerfully and authentically become the best version of yourself. Remember to visit our website at www.findyourleadershipconfidence.com and enjoy even more great episodes like this one. Again, while you're here, subscribe to us via your favorite network. We look forward to seeing you next time on the Find Your Leadership Confidence Podcast.